Hey guys, thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Naturalist Capitalist. Episode 199, coming right up on 200 fast. Thank you for the continued support, continued viewership, continued subscription, all of it. I appreciate all of it. Uh, tonight on the show, it depends on who you ask whether or not he's a comedian, but if you accept the premise <laughs> that he's a comedian, he's the most canceled comedian in the country. Josh Denny, how are you doing tonight? Hey, sir? man, how's it going, Reed? <laughs> Good, good. So are you a comedian and why are you the most canceled one in the country? Yeah, well, I definitely think I'm a comedian. I mean, I'm published, right? <laughs> is it how do you, how does that even what what is the criteria of who's a comedian, right? And that's what I think is so funny is because people will be like, you don't have any dates right now. And I was talking with you before that. It's like, yeah, part of the part of the point of being somebody who says I'm not gonna do clubs or venues or even work with people that are forcing vaccine mandates, it's like uh why would I? Yeah, the byproduct of that is that I'm going to be doing less shows, right? <laughs> it's kind right. of like having principles. I, I said to you, I like it to the fact that be like somebody during the segregation times being like, I don't believe in all this segregation. Anyway, I'm heading into dinner. The guy walks into a whites only restaurant. And they're just like, the fuck are you doing? He's like, ah, well, I don't know. But if, have you had their chicken pasta? It's amazing. Like, listen, I, <laughs> I don't like I don't like it. But, you know, I'm not going to not eat at the place I want to eat. And that's the problem with America. That's how we treat our principles and our values. We just go, ah, this is what I believe in. And somebody goes, how's $5 sound? And they go, I don't give a shit about it anymore. And then that's why we're living in a tyrannical authoritarian regime right now. 100%. So you say a lot of things that, you know. Oh, the second I, I, part of your yeah. question, yeah, was why am I the <laughs> most canceled? I don't know. I, You know, I, I've I've pontificated this with people many times why my tweets rile people up the most and i have people trying to cancel me more frequently than everybody else but i think it's because i'm very good at wording things in a way that that triggers people yeah i mean the stuff you say the inverse of whatever you're saying certainly would not cause the same shitstorm if the left were saying something equally as edgy or equally as um you know pioneering in thought it would not get even close to the same backlash it seems like there's a very one-sided uh wall of outrage that comes whenever you make your jokes yeah and it's it's really like the i'll really fucking blow your mind about it it's 90 percent of the time they're not even mad at what i said they're right. mad at what they think i said which is amazing right like i'll use the trevor noah one for example uh trevor noah did a piece on his show where they go, he owned Joe Rogan and Jordan Peterson about what it means to be black in America. And it was nothing like that. And of course this was before Joe's N word controversy, right? That everybody's talking about. And um, so anyway, I just took the tweet uh, of them sharing Trevor Noah's piece. And I just said, Trevor Noah has only lived in America as a millionaire. Uh, I know more about being black in America than Trevor Noah. Uh, and the amazing thing is, is like, if you go through the comments, it's like 6,000, 7,000 negative comments, something like that. Uh, and all the quote tweets of people sharing their two cents. There were two overwhelming sentiments. Uh, number one, everyone couldn't wait to tell me that he grew up in South Africa during apartheid, which by the way, has fucking nothing to do with my comment about it's exactly Being what I'm a black saying. Black person in America. <laughs> yes, South Africa. Exactly my point. And so, yeah. and basically, and then so what people are saying is racism is racism everywhere, which nobody would disagree with, right? Right. Um, except they would disagree when I go, exactly. Just like so racism towards a white person is the same as racism towards a black person. And they go, well, no, 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 because racism has to include prejudice plus power. So now we're getting into all these mental gymnastics where basically the only thing that's racist is whatever black people say it is, which is fucking insane. The other thing is everyone took from that that uh, once you become a millionaire, you stop being black or that only black people can be poor. That's the only experience. That's the default experience in black America. And I like a lot of my comedy. A lot of what's funny about it is what I don't say and what people assume. And so what was amazing to me was I go, that's, it's interesting that that's what everyone projected on it. So it's like, is that really my opinion or is that your opinion? And the funniest side I said was after the whole thread went for like two, three days and went viral and it and went viral because the tr Trevor Noah was trending. And then my tweet was like the second or third one in that trend. 
And so naturally, every and it was definitely the one that was getting the most engagement. And everybody was sort of like, what could you possibly know about what it is to be black? And I go, if I read your 7,000 comments, I would just assume it fucking sucks. Like not a single person has said one positive thing. And uh, and also this intimation, this idea that I was intimating that black people in America are only poor, like that's the black experience. My primary argument for why America is not systemically racist, if you listen to my podcast, if you watch me on Tower Gang, if you watch me on anything else, I've always stood by the fact that the reason America isn't systemically racist is because we're the greatest producer of black wealth in the world. There's not another country that has produced as many black millionaires and billionaires as the United States. That is evidence that if the, the system is oppressive, it's not working as well as they wanted it to, right? So it's just like this idea that people want you to defend things you don't say is why you can't go out and make public apologies like Joe Rogan just did. Right. Yeah. The thing with Joe Rogan, it disturbs me on two levels. So the first level is um, saying the N-word in context has only been taboo for like a couple of years. My dad is a high school English teacher and he would teach Huckleberry Finn. Sure. And he would read parts of it in class and he would always just say nigger as it's written in the book, never as an insult to anyone or as a derogatory statement. It's just a word that your mouth makes a sound and a word comes out. And if you've read Huckleberry Finn, the whole point of that fucking book is that these white people are treating these black people like trash. And uh, I think his name's Tom, the black character in the book. He's more of a human than most of these white assholes who are running oh, you the mean, world uh, at the time. It, Jim, I think it was. I think the, the black character. Jim, Jim, that's right. Jim. Yeah. Yeah. My dad would be ashamed. I forgot the name already. But um, son of a bitch. That's <laughs> your white privilege read. Exactly. But I mean, he he would read the book out loud and say the word because it's in context in a sentence in, in a book he's reading. And it wasn't until a few years ago that he stopped doing that in a public classroom because people were finally like, hey, Mr. Coverdale, you know, probably shouldn't say that anymore. So well, let me ask stopped. you a question. Let me ask you a question on that just while we're talking sure. about the subject of learning about it in school and hearing that word in school. When you heard that word in school, when your teacher said it to you, did you feel like they were giving you a pass or do you feel like having to hear that word and read that word and say that word out loud actually made you feel how gross and shameful that part of our history was? Like, I actually yeah. think white people having to say it when they're discussing the historical context that you, I remember having to give a, a book report on the book native son. And I remember having to go up in front of the class and use those words in front of black students and see their discomfort with it and share the discomfort with them about it. And then there was sort of this feeling of like, man, aren't we glad that we don't live in these times together? So I, I actually think by censoring the word, you're, you're hurting what, the, what that book and what discussing it, uh, you know, not just Huckleberry Finn, but Native Son and some of these other ones, uh, uh, even Othello, what these what experiencing or going through these historical things together can actually do to build relationships with people yeah 100 percent. i mean the more you know like they're doing that in video games now they're like taking the swastika out of the nazi party i mean the not the in world war ii video games they're like erasing all the symbolism and they're trying to like they were i i can understand like i don't necessarily agree but i can understand not wanting confederate memorials it's a sentiment i can understand like in a town square like i can understand where you're coming from but people want like gettysburg battlefield to be erased of any confederate symbolism and they want the museums to be you know taken down they, they don't want like any re any reminder of anything in our history and i mean this is just the next step like by saying you can't say certain words from the past, you can't well, show... Well, do you, you know. do you know why they want all the traces of that history erased, Reed? <clears throat> so they can reinvent what happened. Yeah. <laughs> People want to lie and reinvent what happened, right? Like, part of the reason they have to erase all the real history, part of the reason why there isn't a movie about William Henry Ellison is because it defeats that narrative. Do you know who William Henry Ellison was? 
I don't. He was basically the uh, Jeff Bezos of funding the Confederacy. He was also one of the largest plantation owners in South Carolina, and he was also black. He was, uh, and it's rumored that he was the half-black son of the slave owner who originally owned the plantation and, and left it to him when he died. But uh, that slave owner was the creator of the cotton gin, and because William Henry Ellison apprenticed under him and learned it, um you know learn about the technology and everything else um he and in, inherited the plantation and i i have a piece that i will i want to put my special uh event we get to do it here in the near future where i kind of talk about could you imagine what that day would be like if you were one of the, one of the slaves on plantation it's probably like how black people felt when obama got elected president where they're like finally all the things we've <laughs> dreamed about and we've wanted and then he's like, not so fast, blacks. Get the fuck back to work. You know what I mean? Yeah, so right. this huge slap in the face of reality. But he, he also sent his black sons into the war on the side of the Confederacy to fight for the Confederacy. And so what, what the existence or the discussion of somebody like William Ellison does is it makes us ask more questions of like, wow. So like, <clears throat> what are the other components involved in the Civil War that would actually make a fucking black man spend his money and send his sons to war, um, you know, against the idea that they wanted black people to be free. And so that's the thing is like the reason they want to erase history is because they want to be able to just go. Uh, the Civil War was just about a Holocaust on black people. Nothing right. to do with its right. It had nothing to do with individual liberty. It had nothing to do with the economy. Like a lot of people don't know. And I'm not like a super well-researched guy. I just remember what I've read from different books and stuff. This isn't my specialty, but there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of stuff that you can go read. How much of the anti-slavery publications uh, only raised the question of morality around slavery because they knew that without uh, you know slavery or, or even indentured servitude, the American economy would fail, and that would force us back into the debt. Uh, into debt with the bank of england and we would essentially cease being a country so it wasn't like the north was all good-hearted white people who just wanted not. to free black people there was no. an economic <laughs> component and an evil component about destroying what the united states was and and basically making us colonies again with britain and making us have to go back to daddy and go we didn't make it on our own they took our slaves away i need to move back into the garage um get my shit together uh great britain so it was kind of like it wasn't this noble thing. There were there was pernicious no. uh, agenda on the side of the north. There was some pernicious agenda on the side. There were certainly uh, people on the south who were like, we view these uh, this as a subhuman class. This is our property, whatever. There were definitely there was definitely that. But there was also all these other nuances to it that never get discussed or taught in school. Like nobody taught us about William Ellison when we covered the Civil War. Nobody tells you about. British nationalist uh, print shops who were truly trying to only raise the moral question of slavery to bankrupt America and put us back into debt with the Bank of England. Uh, and maybe it was just thought we were stupid. But now we're in a now we're in a situation where there's massive attempt to completely erase what actual history was and just create this narrative that there was a black Holocaust in America for 400 years. And it was just because of hatred. Right. And they don't tell us about the Emancipation Proclamation, not freeing slaves in the North, only in the South. They don't. I mean, there's so many different things about the Civil War. But anyway, or the, the original... fact that the Atlantic slave trade was, you know, something that every nation uh, that had a coast on the Atlantic participated in Portugal, Spain, Latin America, right. you know, the the uh, the islands, you know. So it was just one of those things of like, you know, the argument I always give with people when they talk about the racist history of America, as I say, it, it, I'll ask you this question. If you had a time machine and I told you, you could go back and erase slavery and therefore Jim Crow. Okay. Um, but black people will never ascend to the level of wealth and prosperity that they have in America today. Would you go back and erase it? No. Meaning you'd only be able to achieve what the average black person achieves in every other developed nation in the world. Would you go back and erase it? And, you know, if you ask a wealthy black person who's doing very well in America, they go, fuck no. Right. right. You ask somebody who's struggling, they go, yeah. So it's, it's really all about perspective. Morality goes away very quickly with people when you just really narrow it down to their what their real experience is. Right. 
Yeah, so my original point there was that um, they're frying Joe Rogan over just using this word in context in a sentence, which is absolutely ridiculous. But in my opinion, even if he was using it as an insult or in a derogatory way, I mean, you could stop watching his show. You don't have to listen sure. to him anymore. But this, like, I don't care. I mean, I don't care. I I, I think it's disgusting. I, I think, um, you know, Dan Crenshaw, that Joe Rogan has had Dan Crenshaw on his show and made him out to look like a, like a decent human. In my opinion, that's a lot worse than using some slur word, you know, and I'm not trying to get him yeah. off his platform. You know, yeah, Joe, no, I know. Uh, Dan Crenshaw is an advocate for genocide and he's also someone who believes in red flag laws in giving the police crazy powers over people and basically not giving them any accountability he has all sorts of horrible views and joe rogan's had all sorts of people on like that and no one cares about that at all they care much more about some word he said and um i don't know just the the selective outrage is ridiculous but even if somebody says something you really disagree with or says something really abhorrent the idea that we should cancel them and try to get them deplatformed and try to run them out of civilization instead of you know battling their ideas or just talking to them or just you know trying to get people to listen to you instead is i don't know i mean it's it's bringing our society down very quickly because i feel like it for the most part it's what we used to do we used to just disagree with people compared to where we are now now we just try to get rid of them if they say stuff we don't like yeah and <clears throat> it's a great point and and you know um we talked about this a little bit before the show i think as well but like the only times i've ever made the choice i, I guess I'll, I'll rewind a little bit i don't think any white person in america uh has ever felt good when they've heard somebody actually use the n-word as a as a racial slur right like right and i the the few times i've ever chosen to use that word in my act has been because i'm retelling a story where actually using the word is necessary to help you try like kind of travel to that place of feeling super uncomfortable um but i also have heard people use the word in a joke form where they're literally just making a joke uh like the the famous Louis C.K. joke where he's like, that nigga made the shit out of my coffee. It's like, I laugh at that. And I don't, and the whole audience in that crowd of that special laughed at that. I don't think anybody was like, that guy's fucking racist for saying the word in a joking context. And, and even going so far as to say, like with the Rogan, the Planet of the Apes joke, it's like, yeah, that's a racist joke. Jokes can be racist and you can tell racist jokes and be racist, right? Like right. it's funny. And by the way, if we just made it a universal rule that you can't joke about race as a comedian, then every black comedian is going to have to find a fucking job tomorrow because their entire <laughs> act is about how stupid and silly and dumb white people are. Right? right. And so it's just like, I listen, my point of view is I, throughout my life to based on my different life experiences i've been pretty interactive with black communities black people and black culture i'm gonna fucking talk about it i'm gonna talk about how they interact with me or how they receive me i'm gonna talk about the funny shit i notice about them that's what i that's my lived experience and i'll be goddamned if anyone's gonna fucking tell me uh what i'm limited to talking about in my actual life experience based on the color of my skin sorry that sounds like racism you know so it's like if i'm going out to dinner with a black girl I'm dating and somebody does something racist, I'm going to fucking talk about that. However, I want to talk about that. And if you're, a, and this is what's so funny about the warriors on Twitter, they go, come to my neighborhood and say it to my face. I wouldn't do that because that would be racist, right? You come to <laughs> right. my comedy club, hear me do the bit, watch everyone laugh and then try to run up on stage. You'll look like a fucking idiot. You'll get tackled. You'll get the shit kicked out of you by everyone else in the audience. Cause you're a lunatic. You know what I mean? It's just like, we're not talking about the same things. And this idea, I, I said this on Twitter the other day, the real N-word we should be talking about that is the fucking 300-pound elephant in the room that nobody wants to address is nuance. And the idea, this, this manifestation that there's no context in which the N-word is acceptable for a white person to use is so reductive to the intelligence of black people. They're literally saying, because you're too stupid to comprehend the difference, then we have to make it not okay at all. 
Right. Like, do you understand what you're placating into black America? If you're going, there's no difference between comedians using it or like you used earlier, using it in the context of teaching or educating or even reviewing a, a literary work and somebody actually throwing an ethnic slur in someone's face with a, from a perspective of hatred, what you're doing is you're saying black people, you're too fucking stupid to know the difference and black people are going, yeah, we're too stupid to know the difference. So we're going to treat it all the same. It's so in the infantilization of black people in the name of progress in this country is fucking disgusting. It's insane. And I have I have hundreds to thousands of black fans that you can go read in my comments, agree with my sentiments. Uh, they, they feel the exact same way and they're pissed off about it. It's like the more you pretend you don't know the difference, the more stupid you make us all look. Yeah. Yeah. And. I think this is intentional. I don't think that most black people really care. I think that this is a top-down. No. Did you see Kluge's video? Did you see Kluge's video where we went? So uh, I think it's James. Let me make sure I get it right because I don't want to credit him wrong. Um, I think it's James. It's either James or Jason Kluge. Uh, let me find it. It's it, people can go on my Twitter and and I shared his video a couple days ago. James Kluge. His, uh, his Twitter is at real James Klug. And he did a thing about the, the Rogan thing. He said, do people care? He walked down the Venice boardwalk. He talked to white people. He talked to black people. Overwhelmingly, black people didn't give a shit. White people thought he needed to be completely removed from the internet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I think if you were somewhere other than the boardwalk, if you were just at a random job site, you would find most people don't give a shit. I mean, I work a blue collar job. You know, I'm a trucker. I go to a lot of truck stops before this. I used to work on power lines. You'd be working with five or six people on a job site or something. I mean, the most barbaric, disgusting, also probably very different ethnicities in your crews, right? Yeah. Depend. Like I worked on a roofing crew. Uh, I, I'm the, the power lines were in New Hampshire. So everyone in New Hampshire is white, but um, the roofing crew I worked on in Colorado. Yeah. It was black people, Mexicans, white people, Asians, I mean, all sort, and, and that, that's the place where the worst jokes by far I've ever heard in my life came out oh, on that sure. job. Yeah. But it's part of building, part of building camaraderie too. Exactly. You know, yeah. my, my father worked at the Philadelphia Naval Shipyard. Uh, he was in the Navy and then worked at the shipyard his entire life until he retired early in the nineties when the shipyard, uh, right before the shipyard closed. And you, I, he would take me to work as a kid with him sometimes. And the shit I would hear people of different <laughs> races say to each other yeah. in a, by the way, in a government job. And it was just like, yeah, man, that's just, that's just how we fuck around with each other. That's how we get through the day. Like, otherwise we're literally just running rigging equipment through dry docked aircraft carriers and submarines. And if we all had to do that in silence, we'd blow our fucking brains out. It's so, you know, it's so tactical and sort of mundane. And it's like, so, you know, this this idea, I actually think the push to control language is about resegregating America. I think the people behind it are trying to resegregate America. I think the people in favor of it are trying to resegregate America. I mean, they're sort of admitting it. Like some colleges think it's a good idea to go back to segregation, I've heard over the last few weeks. I mean, <laughs> they're just straight up saying it. They're not even just insinuating it well anyway. and there are these people you know and I, and I got sucked into it too like when i went when i had my first cancellation in 2018 i went on tmz which i should have known right away was a bad idea but uh the host van lathan had just gone viral for that uh, kanye outburst where kanye said 400 years of slavery is a choice and van kind of went in on him and i was like okay well when white people get into this they step in shit racially they always run to the right and go talk to tucker carlson or somebody else right. who's white I wanted to be like, fuck that. I'll go sit down and talk to a black person because I, I believe this shit. I believe what I think. I stand by my opinions and I know I'm not a racist. So I'm not afraid to sit across from a black person and dispute ideas. What I didn't understand or account for is he, he did not have good intentions. He did not. It wasn't like an innocent interview. So in the it, like you and I discussed before we did this broadcast, I say, hey, man. Uh, are there any words I'm not allowed to say on this podcast? Like we're going to discuss the word nigger in the context of using it in film and art and music and comedy. So let me know ahead of time if that's going to be a problem. And he goes, nah, man, say whatever you want. If, if TMZ has a problem with it, they'll just bleep you. And I go, okay. So when we get to that point and I start talking about when I've used it in a joke and I use the word, he stops me, creates a moment of outrage 
and tries to make me look like shit on his show. And you see me in that moment get bright fucking red because I'm literally sitting there like, you motherfucker, you 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 did this on purpose. Like you lied to me so that I would do this and you could fucking put this on me. And you could see him get angry in the video and like ball his fists up. And I call that out trying to hit me by making a like clenching your fist over there. And then he just continued like race baiting, like, oh, why are you putting violence? Why are you assuming a black man's about to get violence? I'm violent. I go, dude, I know men. When a man balls his fucking fist and grits his teeth at you, he's trying to tell you that you're ready to fight. Right? Like, let's not let's not pretend that's not a real thing. So it's just like there's so much intellectual dishonesty from the black people in media now when they when you try to have these conversations or discuss these things where it's like there's not an agenda of getting to a, an area of agreement or a commonplace. This is literally black supremacy, the people who are actual true black supremacists pretending that they're progressives. And they are pro-segregation. They're pro, you know, there's so many things that are not progressive in that tract of ideology that's that's not the America I want to live in. Yeah, and I think this is hijacked by greater powers than just some people who feel this way. Like, um, you know, I, I think 20 years ago, a lot of corporate interests were kind of fueled by right-wing um, ideology. But around, I don't know, probably 10 years ago now, the the hands switched to kind of switch to left-wing ideology driving more, um, you know, more corporate interests. And, and obviously it bleeds into both sides, but lately it's been like a lot of the woke uh, racially charged shit that the big corporations have totally got behind. And if you have any sort of dissenting opinion that threatens the corporatocracy, that's when they weaponize racism against you that's exactly what happened to joe rogan i mean if anyone thinks he's being canceled because people are suspicious that he might be racist you're retarded that's obviously not what it's about it's because yeah and you know you know he had dissenting opinions about covid uh stated on his show that millions of people listened to that started making them skeptical the official narrative so then they're like aha we got to do something they did it to tulsi gabbard with uh you know um opposing the war in Syria. Oh, guess what? Guess who likes Tulsi Gabbard? David Duke likes Tulsi Gabbard. They did it with uh, Ron Paul with the newsletters once he started getting popular. Like, it's very, very selective. What's that? I said, I remember that when they did that to Ron Paul when he was running for president. Yep. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's kind of wild. And, and, you know, this is what I always say is like, you have to be careful because so much progressivism is a Trojan horse for something else. Let me give you an example. We carved out like plots of land for Native Americans. We did the casino thing. We do tremendous amount of tax breaks, right? Um, but wrapped inside that, those rules, here's here's an interesting thing. Uh, in order to get Native American benefits, most tribes require a specific percentage of Native blood called blood quantum. In addition to being able to document which tribal member you descend from, some tribes require as much as 25% Native heritage most require at least one sixteenth native heritage. I didn't know that, which is one great grandparent, which I believe I have. So I actually am I entitled too, to think. Native American benefits uh, that I don't claim. But my point is, is interesting that the rules are like that. Main a certain percentage, right? So wouldn't couldn't you simply say? And this is kind of what people talk about about the welfare laws, about how we essentially incentivize black mothers to kick the black father out of the house to collect welfare benefits. So that was actually designed to harm uh, the growth of black families and to destroy the black nuclear family uh, economically. So now you're basically saying in order to receive these benefits, you're not allowed to race mix. So essentially the government is creating things that are forcing these minority groups to stay amongst themselves, right? How fucking gross is that? It's, it's so terrible. So I, this is my, that's my ploy to so many Americans is like, read some of this shit, like, and, and read between the lines. There's, there, there are some powers at work here who are trying to keep us from becoming united, both uh, genetically, physically, biologically, and definitely from a socioeconomic perspective. Yeah, hundred percent. So let me ask this. It, it seems like, I mean, I, I would agree that there's been a, a huge negative side to all this woke bullshit and this 
you know, cultural progressivism that we've had. Has there been anything good about it? Like, obviously, I think it's a good thing that people feel ashamed to call someone the N-word in a derogatory way. Like, it's good that, like, okay, you actually feel like a piece of shit if you do that now. Or, you know. Or if you're in the presence of somebody who does it. Yeah. So, like. I don't even think you have to do it yourself. You can just be. If you're around somebody. Like, there would be so many times when I was traveling the road in my early days of comedy. We were doing shitty one-nighters in North Dakota. And it would be me. And for most of my time as a headliner in my early years of stand-up, my opener was a black comedian, a good buddy of mine named Kevin Kraft. And people would come up to us after the show and say racist sh- jokes and shit all the time because we, he and I would joke with each other about our race on stage. Right. He would tell jokes shitting on me, and then I would tell jokes shitting on him, the things he does that black people do. And it was a fun right. back and forth. The audience doesn't know they're not allowed to participate in that. So they'll come up and they'll tell us all their racist jokes, and they're not professional comedians. So some of them are just offensive. Some of them are funny or whatever. But there would be a huge difference between somebody coming up and attempting a joke and attempting to relate and using the N-word or something, or even saying that's racist without using that word, um, where we would just kind of both brush it off and be like, yeah, dude, they're just trying to relate to us. But if somebody literally came in and was like, get you and your fucking black piece of shit out of here, like them, those are fighting words. We would have been fucking crapping. You right. know what I mean? And so, uh, and there were times like that where that happened and we didn't have to do shit because the owner of the bar or the some other big fucking dudes who were there enjoying the show they handled that they would literally pick that motherfucker up take him outside and stomp him so it's like uh and sometimes it was the guy who just told us a really clunky shitty racist street joke from like the 70s and that guy walked away and kevin and i would look at each other and be like man that guy's kind of that guy might be actually racist and then somebody would come in and say something really racist and that guy would take him outside beat the fuck out of him and uh, then we go no no that guy's our buddy now we're gonna when he comes back in and his knuckles are all bloody then we're gonna fucking buy him drinks and hang out you know so (laughs) Right. It's just like the, all of these attempts to say that there are that you know there's there's certain things about the black experience that white people just can never understand. What you're kind of saying in, in that to black people is don't even try to teach them, don't even share your stories with them, don't bring them into your communities. Don't it's literally a pro-segregation mindset, and it's not a progressive way to look at America. And and I right. don't know about you, Reed, but I'm one of these guys who found myself being like a leading libertarian after spending my entire life considering myself a fringe left liberal. You know, like I was a legalized everything, let people put whatever they want in their bodies, legalized prostitution, you know, uh, what I consider to be a super left wing person and, and a totally free speech and art and comedy and everything. And and then now those are all like right wing libertarian values. Yeah. And the left is like is the side that's pushing for all of these things that are actually super regressive in the name of progressivism. Yeah, it's very ironic. I mean, I grew up on the other side. I'm I'm younger than you, but I uh I grew up in like the neoconservative evangelical right-wing movement of the early 2000s. And what I eventually realized is there's nothing conservative about this. And so I'd say I don't know, probably 2014, 2015, I started drifting out of my extremely conservative bubble. And I very temporarily kind of looked at the left just to see what it was about. And it became obvious very quickly that they were not liberal, you know, in the true sense of the word at all. And there were a few people that stuck out to me who were. um, And some of these people have disappointed me lately. Um, but one guy, I'm, do you remember when uh, Sam Harris was on Bill Maher's show and Ben Affleck went after him about the, the the Muslim stuff? I'm assuming you probably saw that. Yeah, very near and exchange. dear to my heart because my my girlfriend of ten years is Middle Eastern, and so I I'm intimate. I have an intimate understanding. Again, granted, not firsthand because I'm not brown myself, but yeah, uh, I have an intimate understanding because I've listened to stories from her and her parents and her family about what it was. They came to America during the Iranian Revolution. And mm-hmm. so uh, I have a better than the average white person understanding of just how ruthless the religious um, persecution is in the Middle East and and some of the real life effects that's had on people in my life that I love and care about. And so I took a, a vast interest in that clip and I 100 percent agree with, you know, Bill Maher and Sam Harris, you know, Affleck's trying to paint them as 
racists and bigots. And it's like, no, these are the real hard facts about ra uh, religious ideology that people don't want to talk about. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I got all sorts of disagreements with Sam and Bill on foreign policy when it relates to the religion. Same. But as far as same, yeah. as far as the religion goes, they're not wrong when they describe yeah. the intolerance of it. Um, and just like how uh, I watched uh, Sam Harris. Correctness, political correctness. We're vastly approaching a point where political correctness is going to prevent us from calling truly evil things evil like like that kind of religious ideology or the idea that pedophilia is just a preference it's like these are really fucking evil things that exist in the world and and you're attempting to normalize them in the name of progressivism and that is something that needs to be fought against yeah 100 percent um and i remember sam harris went on jenk uger's show the young turks for a three-hour debate i don't know if you ever watched that that was completely a waste of time but it was the yeah. same i mean it was just like a logic fact-based argument against outrage, you know? And then um, throughout the last few years, a lot of these people that I considered kind of liberal um, warriors for free speech have really disappointed me. Bill Maher is probably like the, one of the only mainstream people who's done like a sort of okay job <laughs> throughout this whole time. But yeah, I mean, it's man, like Don't I used to feel like, don't you feel like he, you're watching him slowly drift to the right on his show every week? <laughs> yeah, I mean, a lot of people, it seems that way, because they just, I mean, when you're faced with the amount of stupidity we've had the last couple of years, um, you know, your, your, your gravitational swing will just change, <laughs> you know, if, yeah. you're, if you have any sanity at all. But well, I have a question for you on Reed. You, sure. So I imagine you see a lot of that. We got into a discussion on the, on the thread and then we, we talked about it on my spaces last Friday. But I, I watch a lot of people move from the left to the right by the nature of living in uh, Los Angeles. And yeah. I find that more of those people are women. And we were pontificating on why that might be the case. And one of the conclusions I arrived at was, I think women care far more about being lied to than men. And so I think when you look at like the amount of broken promises of the government and the amount of those types of things that have not come true or, or even like all the medical and health advice that has turned out to be wrong and misguided and uninformed and, and motivated by profit, I think women have a far more explosive reaction to discovering those things than maybe men do. And so I mm -hmm. think that's why so many more, in, at least in my experience, women are coming from the left to radically to the right, um, just in their own personal discovery of information. Do you find that to be the case with people in your world or in your circle? I don't know. I mean, unfortunately, I have like a 95% male following, so it's hard to nice. judge. But, um Gay guys, I, I get it. I'm with it. No, I'm <laughs> I think uh, the thing with the women is probably two things. I think women are just naturally more trusting than men are. You know, they, they'll kind of take people's word a little bit more than men will in general. And then the other Stupid thing is... Stupid and gullible. I got gotcha. you. Yeah. <laughs> See, I'll do to you what the people do to me. I'll just put oh, words yeah, no, in your mouth. Oh, yeah, no, it's perfect. I love it. Them. <laughs> um, the other thing is, you know, women have... Women are mothers a lot of the time, and if the government is telling you to do something to your children that will make them healthier, and then you find out it's a lie, obviously, if you're a father, you're going to get upset too. But if you're a mother, like, and the government has been telling you, you need to do this, and it will keep your child healthy, and then they see that they've been blatantly lied to for two years, you know, <laughs> you're going to radicalize a lot of people. So I would guess it's those two things that you know they're more trusting and they have children and when you fuck with their children like watch out it's but, a problem yeah yeah you know. yeah it's, it's kind of like a mama bear mentality yeah but going back to your original thing of like what what other good has come out of it i, I think the only good out of it is that it's it is waking people up um what i what i wish i saw more of in terms of the good is i wish more comedians would stop fucking bending um, yeah. you know, there's a lot of comedians that I really respect that have quite frankly, and I'll look dead in the camera. You guys have pussy faggoty views about standing up to the mob when it comes to comedy and you back down too easily, right? Like it's, it's so dis the, the Joe Rogan thing disappointed the shit out of me because his whole career, he had the same philosophy about words and language that I do. He's done full bits about 
this exact thing. Outrage over a sound that comes out of my mouth, regardless of context. And then he completely betrayed that. And listen, I, I've worked with Joe a couple times. I met him. We've had conversations about stuff. Um, he's a very nice, genuine, sensitive dude. And so mm -hmm. it's very possible that even his family came to him and said, look, man, just don't put us through this. We don't want to go through this. And he made that decision selflessly for the other people in his life who don't want to have to fight the, the um, uh, collateral battles that come with being Joe's daughter or wife. And, and then I could see that being a different situation than for me, a guy who doesn't really have a lot of like a big circle. I don't have kids or a family. And a lot of people don't know this, but Joe's oldest daughter who's adopted from his wife's first relationship or marriage or whatever is, is mixed. She's half black. And so I, that very well could have been a part of the, you know, dad, you're putting me in, in a tough situation. I'm trying to become an artist. I'm trying to become a musician. Now I got to deal with, you know, your, your fuck dad is racist. And so he might've done it for completely unselfish reasons, even though he vehemently disagrees with that. And that means that man is a better fucking man and a father than he is a comedian. And that's more important, I think. Right. So mm -hmm. I understand, I, I forgive it for him. Uh, what I, who I don't forgive it with are a lot of these other comedians who are just trying to avoid this, this, the heat and the smoke. And so they'll talk all day about the importance of free speech, but they won't ever actually take risks. And that's why every comedic thing that's come out for the past 10 years fucking sucks. Most of it sucks, right? You'll find some real great stuff. Ryan Long, fucking hilarious. Yeah, His sketches great. are yeah. hilarious, <laughs> right? Uh, all the guys and, and gal that I pal around with from the um, Compound Media Group, Chrissy Mayer, Gino Bisconti, Aaron Berg, all fucking hilarious, all uh, unafraid to push any buttons. Um, and there's so many more, like guys like Shane Gillis, Tony Hinchcliffe. Uh, these are comedians that I, I really like and respect and think the world of. But uh, there have probably been times, if you go back and look, where they've all bent. Like Shane Gillis apologized for SNL. I would have literally went on stage and took a shit at, at fucking, uh, you know, whatever the studio number is where they do SNL. Uh, I, I literally would have left a big pile of shit on there and, and went out in a blaze of glory. And and listen, maybe, maybe that's the kind of attitude that's held me back in my career. But I don't. Like, to me, I only want to do this if I can do this the most free way and exactly how I want to do it. And, you know, it's like Patrice said, Patrice O'Neill, he's like, the, the good jokes and bad jokes and the, the mad successes and the failures, they all come from the same place. We're all just trying to be funny. And, and beyond that, some of us are trying to say something or even just point things out to people. And in a lot of my comedy, what I try to do is, like, point out to people that, uh, shit is not as bad as they tell you it is, and uh, we don't have to hate each other for our differences. It can be fun. It can be silly. You can enjoy it. You can give each other shit about it. Um, I really want to try to get back to people back to a place. Like I always say, I never want to try to tell the audience what to think. I just like to give them options on how to think. And so I try to present things in a different way than they've heard about them before and, and be outrageous and silly. And yeah. uh you know, there's a, there's very few people that are doing that anymore. You know, that's what I love about working with Gavin McInnes is like there. I've never gotten a call or a text from Gavin like, whoa, dude, that joke where you, that joke on your show where you talk about uh, ushers, kids drowning is not fun. Like, that's not OK. Like, I've never had that conversation with Gavin about the content in my show. If anything, I'll get a call or a text from him. that's like, ah, oh, dude, you should have thrown this joke in there. And I was like, fuck, where were you? That would have been great. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing because, you know, throughout history, comedians have always been the ones who push the envelope. Like, um, you know, uh, I don't think anyone will be better than George Carlin. That's just my opinion. But that guy was always... I, uh, we, share, we share that opinion. Yeah, man. He would just always, you know, push the envelope with thought on, you know, skepticism toward what the government was doing or whatever it was through jokes. Like, he would change the way people think by making a joke about something that's the power of comedy and now most comedians are not trying to change thought at all they're saying things that are already mainstream and waiting for you to laugh at them afterward where's the value in that that doesn't push anyone to think it doesn't push anyone to change it doesn't shock anyone and make them you know revisit something it's just completely dead yeah, and it's tough as a comedian to bring up Carlin and how much I admire and respect him and how much I think it's my responsive responsibility a little bit as a comedian to try to find a way to do what he did. And not exactly, but like to your point, 
find a way to make jokes that kind of push people's buttons a little bit and go, yeah, like, why do I think that? You know what I mean? Like one of the bits I have, and I fucking use this as an example all the time, but I just think it's the bit that's my best example is I do a bit about slavery and the setup is uh, I'm super lazy. If it were legal, I would totally have slaves. And the amazing thing is, is I let the room sit with that for a second. And then I point out to them that I didn't say what color they'd be. You just guessed because you're all fucking racist. And then immediately, <laughs> if you have good diversity in the audience, the black people will start pointing at the white people and shitting on them like, oh, yeah, you I go. You picked them again. You didn't have to pick them in your mind. You could have picked robots. You could have picked anything. Right. No. Um, but I'm, I'm showing them that they automatically have this assumption. And there's so much more slavery in the world today that has nothing to do with black people in America that nobody bats an eye about. Right. And then I go and then I launch into this thing of like, if we had to do that slavery over again, I think this time I would pick gay guys because I think they'd be way better based on the job description. I mean, it's a bunch of naked dudes chained up to a bunch of other naked dudes. And their job <laughs> is to stand out in a field of sunshine and pick out fabric all day. That sounds pretty fucking gay. <laughs> I mean, they'd love it. And let me guess, if they do a bad job, it's a little whipping. If they do a good job, it's a little whipping. And at the end of the day, somebody might fuck you. It's like, that sounds like West Hollywood. Okay? So, yeah, it's like they say, one man's trash is another man's nightclub. So, that's my, it's like, it's a silly thing. But then there are literally people walking out going like, oh, yeah, it's pretty silly. And it's ridiculous. And we shouldn't be so sensitive about it. And so, you know, I try to bring a little, I like to try to prove to people that you can, you i'll literally make you laugh at anything all the things you walked in here thinking what they make jokes about this i'm not gonna laugh if they talk about this i'm not gonna laugh i tried to take that challenge and go i'll fucking find a way to make you laugh about this horrible awful thing and it takes sometimes it takes a lifetime to get there but i think every response or every comedian has some responsibility with that platform to try to do something that does that that tries to get people to uh enjoy their life more or change like change the way they look at world i mean the whole concept of comedy is you're trying to bring people joy there's a lot right. of different ways to skin that cat and um i don't necessarily know that a lot of comedians look at that in a deep way and say how can i really bring bring people to a place of long lasting fulfilling joy a lot of comedians just want to tell people what they already think and remind them that they're right and fucking ascend some kind of ladder to fame and wealth. And that's fucking gross, dude. That's that's corporatism. That's not comedy. That's not art. Yeah, no, I mean, 100 percent. I couldn't agree more with what you just said there at all. Um, it's it's really sad. I mean, what if people go wa uh, if people go watch the intro I made to this show back two years ago when I first started doing episodes, one of the things I said was people don't like getting into conversations with people they disagree with because they're uncomfortable with the fact that somebody might say something that makes them wonder if they're wrong. You know, somebody you disagree with might say something that makes a little bit too much sense. And I think it's the same way with comedy. Someone might say something offensive that you end up thinking is funny. And then you retrospectively end up thinking about what was said and realize maybe I, you know, maybe I was wrong. And so this whole woke canceling bullshit, what it really is, is it's just, it's just a, it's a phobia of finding new information, of expanding your knowledge, of hearing new ideas because you are afraid, wow, I have not really thought about why I believe any of this shit. And, you know, if I actually entertain it, I might end up becoming that way because it might make sense to me. I mean, that kind of seems to be the root of the problem with all this stuff. Well, and listen, it's like, uh, I'm all about the marketplace of ideas. So I'm never afraid to go into a, an environment where people disagree with me because if my ideas suck, then maybe I should change them, you know? And, and right. if they have better ideas that can articulate their point of view better than listen, I, I famously say this, I famously, whatever, yank, yank, but I, you know, on all my podcasts, when we talk about abortion, I I'm, I'm trying to be very forthcoming about the fact that I've only been pro-life as recently as a few years ago. And it's because I brought on a conservative comedian named Adam Yenzer, who I've become very good friends with, who made great points about the argument for being pro-life and changed my fucking mind live on my podcast. Literally took away all my excuses, all my defenses, 
and complete. And we literally walked away and I go, dude, you've converted me. I really, you're right. See what you were supposed to do was say, how dare you hold this position and just shun him the entire time. Exactly. Well, and also just say, you're a man. Well, this is the reductive one. You're a man. You don't even get to have a thought or opinion about this. right? Right. And so, you know, as somebody who's, I feel like my life has been enriched by being willing to put myself in uncomfortable positions and have hard conversations and defend my thoughts. uh, It's made me a better person, a more well-rounded person. And and those friendships become really, really great friendships and great relationships with people because you're, it's built on a foundation of true mutual respect for where each other is coming from. Um, I say the same thing. Like, I agree with you when people go, you know, I don't, I don't want to even have conversations about that. It's like, well, you don't want to have the foundation of what you believe to be rocked to its core and be forced to look at yourself. And it's the same thing I say when you hear comedians go, I don't watch other comedians. I don't want them to influence me. And it's like, well, that's probably for two reasons. Number one, you don't want them to remind you how mediocre you are and how much work you have to do to get as good as them. Um, Or on the flip side, you don't want them to present information that might contradict something you talk about in your material and then make you doubt yourself. Right. And it's just like, then make a better bit. So like, I look at anytime I see a comic do a bit, that's an opinion I disagree with. I don't jump on the internet and tell them they're wrong. I go, how can I make a bit that fucking crushes that bit? Right. You know what I mean? And I honestly, I think that's what Carlin probably did back then. He, there wasn't Twitter. There wasn't the internet. Otherwise, I don't know how much time Carlin would have spent making specials and not fucking rage battling people on Twitter about their shitty opinions, right? He'd probably have, he'd probably be on one of these networks like Daily Wire or something, just arguing with people all day because it was there. But what he did was he looked at what are the common consenting opinions, what's wrong with them, and how do I take a, an opposing viewpoint and make that entertaining? Because there were a lot of times where Carlin's best bits weren't even funny, but they were entertaining and incredibly insightful. And um, and he put a lot of thought into them and developed them over time. I mean, you know, I've been developing I've been a comic for 15 years. I've been developing some bits for that entire time where there's a the, the slavery bit is on my album from 2012. It goes in a completely different direction than where it is today. And so, you know, it's just you, you sharpen that saw the more you do it. And, and, you know, if you're not engaging with people in any sort of meaningful way, I would challenge you don't really have any meaningful friendships. And that's it's so interesting that like the people like you and I who are willing to have these conversations, whether we agree or disagree, when you dig deeper, you find out like, oh, they actually have a loving wife of many years or a partner or whatever. They actually have a really great tight group of friends. They, they're really right. close with certain members of their family. You find out these people that that, that personality trait leads to them having a much more fulfilled life you talk to these people who don't want to let any other ideas in they're they're miserable they have no fucking friends they spend all day on social media those two things are very connected and so if you can't open your fucking mind uh i feel sorry for you your life is inevitably going to be shit yeah i think you know it, it comes down to humility really um you know i used to be Uh, a neoconservative, you know, religious fanatic, basically. And now what religion, what religion were you brought up? Christian, uh, very uh, Protestant evangelical. Okay, yeah. Um, And by the way, we we were Protestant, but we we were so Protestant, we really didn't even fucking practice. (laughs) Oh, yeah. No, I wasn't that lucky. I got I got all of it. But I do have to defend my parents. They were anti-war. They were the only ones in the family at least on the east coast (laughs) that were anti-war everyone else in my family was pro-war my church was pro-war you know every institution i went to iraq war the iraq war and the afghanistan war um but uh I, i do have to defend them on that front but when i was in high school i started trying to really dig into those kind of neoconservative super super right wing christian roots and then once I got out of high school, I realized, wow, I don't talk to anyone who disagrees with me. I don't you know, try to find out truth. What I'm doing instead is I'm creating a narrative and then I'm sifting all my life experiences out of the way and just you know, finding the parts that agree with my ideology already. And that's like showing up to a crime scene 
and you know you've heard one of your friends is the suspect you're going to do everything you can at that crime scene to try to find evidence to prove that it's not your friend instead of just showing up with an open mind and being like okay who did this what happened and so i realized that was a mistake i had made in my life and i think what really drove it home i started traveling because i grew up in new hampshire you know i only I just traveled yeah i only traveled out of state a little bit went to Arizona a couple times, flew there. But for the most part, like mostly in New England, never went anywhere, you know, to have a culture shock much. Um, and then in 2015, I went to, uh, well, 2015 and 2016, I ended up going to all 50 states um, and meeting tons of different people. And I was, I remember there was this one time I was in California up north in the woods at a gun store. And I was just like, okay, I'm out in the woods at a gun store in, you know, uh, like near Redding, California, somewhere. This is not at all what I had in my mind when I thought of California. And you know why? Because I'd never been to California. So I had always thought that California was nothing but Hollywood Boulevard. And so when I went there and I went to- blonde hair and big tits and you were like, what are all these Mexicans doing? (laughs) Yeah. So when you actually go- and you meet the people and you see the entire state and you go everywhere. And this also goes for Alaska, Hawaii, you know, wherever, like you have a preconceived idea of what something is. And if you actually go to it and try to experience it, you realize you were wrong, that there's way more going on, that you had a very simplistic view. So it made me think, what else have I been wrong about? Like probably everything. So I just started from square one and I was like, I want to know, you know, what's going on. I want to know what's true. And that has really led me to this type of mindset you're talking about where you just want to sit down and talk with anyone and see how they got where they are and, you know, try to convince them of your opinion. And, you know, maybe in convincing them of your opinion, you actually realize that you were wrong again and that they were right. And if you are actually right, maybe they'll realize you're right. And, It's just a win-win. So why ever turn down a conversation? Why ever turn down a thought experiment? But that's being so pushed aside these days. Everyone wants their comfortable belief system that they have come up with and they don't want anyone to touch it. And so, you know, um, really biting comedy is a threat to that (laughs) style of thought because it makes you laugh. And then after you laugh at something, you usually end up thinking about it and that's, you know, that's dangerous to the status quo. Certainly. Yeah. I mean, you know, it started for me a little earlier than you because I grew up and I moved schools a lot as a kid. So I was constantly having to like reintroduce myself to new kids. You know, I changed schools um, going from like preschool to elementary. We moved towns and then I did my first grade through fourth grade in the same city. And then I moved to Philadelphia uh, which was only an hour away from where I was going to school in Delaware. Um, and that was when my parents split. And then I went to school in like the Philly area for two and a half years and then went back to that place in Delaware, then moved to Minnesota in 10th grade. And so um, the, uh, what was I going to say? The, um, you know, that process of constantly going to new places and having to introduce yourself to new people. And then uh, with my first professional job working at Hollywood video stores, I quickly rose the ranks and was traveling to other territories to do training and then eventually to manage those places, South Dakota, North Dakota, you know, all over Minneapolis. And then I joined Crocs and I was responsible for the entire, you know, Northeast United States. So I was traveling Pittsburgh, Chicago, you know, Michigan, all these places, building these markets and meeting all these people. And then I got into comedy and I started traveling the country, you know, uh, meeting all these different people and, And then even after I moved to L.A., I had had a corporate job for the first few years. But, you know, when I got kind of uh, fired from one in 2013, first time I'd ever been fired. And they they tried to scapegoat my comedy as the reason they fired me. But it was really because I whistle blew on them something they were doing that was illegal. And we sued them and settled out of court. But I started doing uh, Uber driving in 2013 to supplement my income because California on insurance was nowhere uh, or employment. Uh, unemployment insurance sorry i sound dyslexic but uh, california unemployment insurance wasn't anywhere close to what i was making or what i needed to pay bills so i was like i'll just start uber driving and i did that for like all the way up until the start of the pandemic and 
um, I can tell you, like I did somewhere like 30,000 rides over that, you know, eight year period or whatever. And I met a cross section of people in Los Angeles that you couldn't possibly meet any other way. And I've literally listened to the life stories of like people from all over the world, all over this city, all different kinds of Latino people, Hispanic people, black people, white people from all Asian people from all different walks of life. And so if somebody comes up to me and goes, you're white, what could you possibly know about other people in the world? <laughs> uh, it's like, why don't you ask? Are you really yeah. genuinely asking? And how much time do you have? Because I'll walk you through some shit. And so it's like I've listened to probably thousands of hours of people telling me about their firsthand life experiences. And so um, as a person who's naturally curious in people, uh, I love that part of it. And um, not doing it, I miss that part of it. I, I do think there is something really uh, romantic about just putting two strangers in a situation and forcing them to interact with each other. It's the most organic form of human experience you can get. And um, it's like I literally get to go on a blind date with fucking half of the city at different times. You know what I mean? And it's and yes, yeah. some a lot of people suck, by the way. Let me put that out there. A lot of fucking people just ah, fucking uh, this i lost a hundred followers today on tiktok what the fuck like there's a lot of that but there's but you'll also meet these amazing people with incredible fucking life stories and um and you'll build long-lasting relationships like i made a friend who was a food blogger from denmark and i still you know we stayed in touch for many many years over social media and then just kind of like lost touch and everything but it's like you meet these people um in these random environments and it, it really does bring a lot of depth to your world experience and your perspective on human beings. And I just don't think enough people put themselves in situations like that to allow humanity to surprise you. And that's the one thing, like uh, if I talk to friends of mine, they're like, job, you know, I'm so fucking dejected about women or I'm so, if it's vice versa, if it's a woman friend of mine, she's like, I'm so tired of men. I go like, you cannot give up on the hope that people can still surprise you right? Like that is what makes us human. And you have to be brave enough in yourself to understand that people can still surprise you. The minute you lose that hope is when the despair and the depression and the self-hatred really starts to settle in. And, um, you know, so it's, it's like, there's, I just love people. I love being around people and talking to people. And that's why I do a podcast. And that's why I do all of the podcasts that people come to me to do, whether they have a following of 30 or 30,000 uh, because I feel like it's just so rewarding and you never know what's going to come out. It's like you and I could have a conversation in this episode where I go, Oh, that's an interesting thought Reed had. What can I do with that as a comedian? How can I make that funny or whatever? So it's just like, if your if your currency is the human experience, or I should say your raw materials for what you manufacture for me as comedy and art and film and everything else is human experience. Why would I not want to put myself into as much of that as I possibly can? Which is why it shocks me when so many comedians like get in their bubble and they don't want to get out of it. It's like that's it's counterintuitive to what it is to be a comedian. Yeah. Well, I think that's a great note to end on there because uh, that kind of wraps it. That, that, that just kind of <laughs> encapsulates everything. Like just go go talk to other people. Go actually live. Go hear other people's life experiences instead of just assuming what they are based on the color of their skin or the state they're from um, get because, weird with it man put something yeah. in your mouth that you normally wouldn't you know <laughs> fucking get, get a little crazy what <laughs> experiment that's why i laugh when people go wow do you what do you know about being gay are you gay i go i don't know I, no, no one's really pushed me over the edge yet i, I don't know <laughs> if somebody helped me at dick point I don't know what I would do, right? I really have never been in that situation before. But, you know, they say in times of du great duress, you find out what you're really made of. So if I ever find myself in that situation, I'll let you know. <laughs> <laughs> I got your uh, Twitter uh, bio in the description and your website. But is there anywhere else you want people to follow you, keep up with you? No, that's it, man. I'm, mo I'm mostly on Twitter. We do, obviously, the Jankum podcast that comes out on Mondays. And then I do uh, a Twitter live spaces on Friday night. So anybody who's in this that that is on Twitter would like to join us Friday. That'll be fun. Uh, we'll go over we'll go over my invitation to the Sassandra show, which is another one of these situations of uh, black show oh. trying to get me to come on and have them call me racist for an hour. 
But uh, so you yeah, gonna so take that, it? Are you gonna take it this time and just be ready for it and fire? No, actually, no, no, no. My, my rule is is I'm I'm never gonna go on the road to to uh, defend the shit that I talk about. You're welcome to come on my show, or we can go to a neutral place to discuss it. I'm never gonna go on somebody else's show where their producers can cue things up and package them and edit them in a way where it can completely be taken out of context. And listen, like. They can take it out of context on your own show with good editing. Look what they just did right. to Rogan, right? So, yeah. and people don't care about context. So, why would you, why would you literally, uh, William Wallace yourself and just walk up and go, ah, I know they're going to capture me and kill me, but uh, that's what I'm going to do. Yeah. So, no, instead, I'm going to do what the right is terrible at. I'm not going to try to argue their stupid points with intellectualism. I'm going to ridicule the fuck out of them, and uh, and let's see how that one goes. <laughs> <laughs> speak to them in their own language right yeah exactly. oh how do who's them who's them reed how <laughs> dare you <laughs> well i appreciate the time thanks for joining me man um i'd like to get you back again especially Next if you time. can get extra canceled in the future we could have some more excitement down the road i think the um, only way i could be more canceled than i have been so far is to be murdered for for doing comedy so oh well, let's I, not I do that then i don't if I'm i ever get more canceled than i've been so far i have to imagine that it'll be hard to book podcasts <laughs> <laughs> all right everyone if you're watching this live i'm about to end so go watch tower gang i'm probably going to jump on there if they're still going but i hate to steal the the uh the stream from them but i got a busy week so just had to jam this one in here um, episode 200 will be airing on Saturday night, I think at um, 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. I got a special surprise coming on episode 200. I'll tell you guys about that. But, yeah, thanks again, Josh, and uh, 